The Cornerstone Speech Alexander Stevens, Vice President, Confederate States of America, March 21, 1861 When perfect quiet is restored, I shall proceed. I cannot speak so long as there is any noise or confusion. I shall take my time. I feel quite prepared to spend the night with you if necessary. I very much regret that everyone who desires cannot hear what I have to say. Not that I have any display to make, or anything very entertaining to present, but such views as I have to give I wish that everyone, not only in this city, but in this state and throughout our Confederate Republic, who have a desire to hear, could hear. We are passing through one of the greatest revolutions in the history of the world. Seven states have within the last three months thrown off an old government and formed a new one. This revolution has up to this time been signally marked by the fact of its having been accomplished without the loss of a single drop of blood. This new constitution or form of government constitutes the subject to which your attention will be partly invited. In reference to it, I make this first general remark. It amply secures all our ancient rights, franchises, and liberties. All the great principles of the Magna Carta are retained in it. No citizen is deprived of life, liberty, or property, but by the judgment of his peers under the laws of the land. The great principle of religious liberty, which was the honor and pride of the old Constitution, is still maintained and secured. All the essentials of the old Constitution, which have endeared it to the hearts of the American people, have been preserved and perpetuated. Some changes have been made. Some of the changes I disagree with, but there are other changes of which I approve. They form great improvements upon the old Constitution. So taking the new Constitution as a whole, I have no hesitancy in giving it as my judgment that it is decidedly better than the old. Allow me briefly to allude to some of these new improvements. The question of building up class interests or fostering one part of the economy at the expense of another through the taxing power is put at rest forever. We allow the imposition of no duty with a view of giving advantage to one class of persons in any trade or business over those of another. All, under our system, stand upon the same broad principles of perfect equality. Honest labor and enterprise are left free and unrestricted in whatever pursuit they may be engaged. This old thorn of the tariff, which was the cause of so much irritation in the old body politic, is removed forever from the new. Again, the subject of constructing internal improvements under the power of Congress to regulate commerce is put at rest under our new system. We of the South, generally apart from considerations of constitutional principles, opposed its exercise because it was counterproductive and unfair. Notwithstanding this opposition, millions were drawn from the common treasury for such purposes. Our opposition sprang from no hostility to commerce or to all necessary aids for facilitating it. With us, it was simply a question of who should bear the burden. In Georgia, for instance, we have done as much for the cause of internal improvements as any other portion of the country, according to population and means. We have stretched out lines of railroads from the seaboard to the mountains, dug down the hills, and filled up the valleys at a cost of nearly $25 million. All this was done to open an outlet for our products from the interior and those to the west of us to reach the markets of the world. No state was in greater need of such facilities than Georgia, but we did not ask for these works to be paid for from the common treasury. The cost of the grading, the superstructure, the equipment of our roads was borne by those who would benefit from it. The true principle 
is to tax the commerce of every locality to the extent necessary to pay for improvements that make the commerce possible in the first place. If Charleston Harbor needs improvement, let the commerce of Charleston bear the burden. If the mouth of the Savannah River needs to be cleared out, let the seagoing navigation which has benefited by it bear the burden. Same for the mouths of the Alabama and Mississippi River. Just as the products of the interior, like cotton, wheat, corn, and other articles, have to bear the necessary rates of freight over our railroads to reach the seas. This is again the broad principle of perfect equality and justice, and it is especially set forth and established in our new Constitution. Another feature to which I will allude is that the new Constitution provides that cabinet ministers and heads of departments may have the privilege of seats upon the floor of the Senate and House of Representatives, and may have the right to participate in the debates and discussions about the activities of the executive branch. I should have preferred that this provision should have gone further and required the President to select his cabinet members from the Senate and House of Representatives. That would have conformed entirely to the practice in the British Parliament, which in my judgment is one of the wisest provisions in the British Constitution. It is the only feature that saves that government. It gives it stability during a change of administrations. Ours, as it is, is close to the right principle. Under the old Constitution, a Secretary of the Treasury, for instance, had no opportunity, save by his annual reports, to present any scheme or plan of finance to Congress. He had no opportunity of explaining, expounding, enforcing, or defending his views of policy. In the British Parliament, the Prime Minister brings in his budget and stands before the nation, responsible for its every item. He must defend his plan. This will now be the case to a limited extent under our system. In the new Constitution, provision has been made by which our heads of departments can speak for themselves and the administration in behalf of their policies, without resorting to the indirect and highly objectionable medium of a newspaper. Another change in the Constitution relates to the length of the President's term in office. In the new Constitution, it is six years instead of four, and the President is ineligible for a re-election. This is certainly a decidedly conservative change. It will remove from the incumbent all temptation to use his office to exert the powers entrusted to him for any objects of personal ambition. The only incentive to that high ambition which should move and actuate one holding such high trusts in his hands will be the good of the people, the advancement, prosperity, happiness, safety, honor, and true glory of the Confederacy. But not to be tedious in listing the numerous changes for the better, allow me to mention one other that, though it is last, is not least. The new Constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institution, African slavery. As it exists amongst us, it is the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Jefferson, in his forecast, had anticipated this as the rock upon which the old Union would split. He was right. What was conjecture with him is now a realized fact. But I doubt that he fully comprehended the great truth upon which that rock stood and stands. The prevailing ideas entertained by him and most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old Constitution were that the enslavement of the African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. It was an evil they knew not well how to deal with, 
But the general opinion of the men of that day was that somehow or other, in the order of providence, the institution would be short-lived and pass away. This idea, though not incorporated in the Constitution, was the prevailing idea at that time. The Constitution, it is true, secured every essential guarantee to the institution of slavery while it should last. Hence, no argument can be justly made against the guarantees in the Constitution simply because of the common sentiment of the day. Those ideas, however, were fundamentally wrong. They rested upon the assumption of the equality of the races. This was an error. It was a sandy foundation, and the government built upon it fell when the storm came and the wind blew. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests, upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man. That slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. This truth has been slow in the process of its development. Like all other truths, in the various departments of science, it has been so even amongst us. Many who hear me perhaps can recollect well that this truth was not generally admitted even within recent times. The errors of the past generation still clung to many as late as 20 years ago. Those in the North who still cling to these errors, with a zeal above knowledge, we justly regard as fanatics. All fanaticism springs from an aberration of the mind, from a defect in reasoning. It is a type of insanity. One of the most striking characteristics of insanity is forming correct conclusions from imagined or false premises. So it is with the anti-slavery fanatics. They assume that the Negro is equal, and hence conclude that he is entitled to equal privileges and rights with the white man. If their premises were correct, their conclusions would be logical and just, but their premise being wrong, their whole argument fails. I recollect once of having heard a gentleman from one of the northern states, of great power and ability, announce in the House of Representatives with imposing effect that we of the South would be compelled, ultimately, to yield upon this subject of slavery that it was as impossible to war successfully against a principle in politics as it was in physics or mechanics, that the principle would ultimately prevail, that we, in maintaining slavery as it exists with us, were warring against a principle, a principle founded in nature, the principle of the equality of men. I replied to him that upon his own grounds we should ultimately succeed, and that he and his associates, in this crusade against our institutions, would ultimately fail. I admitted that it was true, that it was as impossible to war successfully against a principle in politics as it was in physics and mechanics. But I said that it was he, and those acting with him, who were warring against a principle. They were attempting to make things equal, which the Creator had made unequal. In the conflict thus far, success has been on our side, complete throughout the length and breadth of the Confederate States. It is upon this that our social fabric is firmly planted, and I cannot permit myself to doubt the ultimate success of a full recognition of this principle throughout the civilized and enlightened world. As I have stated, the truth of this principle may be slow in development, as all truths are, and ever have been, in the various branches of science. It was so with the principles announced by Galileo. It was so with Adam Smith and his principles of political economy. It was so with Harvey and his theory of the circulation of the blood. 
It is stated that not a single person in the medical profession, living at the time of the announcement of the truths made by him, admitted them. Now they are universally acknowledged. May we not, therefore, look forward with confidence to the ultimate universal acknowledgement of the truths upon which our system rests. It is the first government ever to be instituted upon the principles of nature and the will of providence in furnishing the materials of human society. Many governments have been founded upon the principle of the subordination and serfdom of certain classes of the same race. Such were and are in violation of the laws of nature. Our system commits no such violation of nature's laws. With us, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal before the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He, by nature or by the curse against Canaan, is fitted for the condition that he occupies in our system. The architect in the construction of buildings lays the foundation with the proper material, granite. Then comes the brick or the marble. The foundation of our society is made of the material best fitted by nature for it. By experience we know that it is best not only for the superior, but for the inferior race, that it should be this way. It is indeed in conformity with the will of the Creator. It is not for us to inquire into the wisdom of God's workings, or to question them. For His own purposes He has made one race to differ from another, as He has made one star to differ from another star in glory. The great objects of humanity are best attained when there is conformity to His laws and decrees, in the formation of governments as well as in all things. Our confederacy is founded upon principles in strict conformity with God's laws. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone of our building. I have been asked, what of the future? Some have said that we will have the civilized world arrayed against us. I care not who or how many they may be against us. When we stand upon the eternal principles of truth, if we are true to ourselves and the principles for which we contend, we must triumph. Thousands of people who begin to understand these truths are not yet completely out of the shell. They do not see them in their fullness. We hear much of the civilization and Christianization of the barbarous tribes of Africa. In my judgment, those ends will never be attained, but by first teaching them the lesson taught to Adam, that in the sweat of his brow he should eat his bread, and teaching them to work and feed and clothe themselves. Some have doubted whether it is possible for us to go on with the Confederacy without further increases in territory. Do we have the means and ability to maintain a nation among the powers of the earth? On this point I would say, I know we are all anxious to have the border states join us, as they have institutions similar to ours. But even if they should ultimately make up their minds not to join our confederacy, we will be abundantly able to maintain our position. That they will ultimately join us is my confident belief, but we can get on very well without them, even if they do not. We have all the essential elements of a high national career. The idea has spread in the North, and even in the border states, that we are too small and too weak to maintain a separate nation. This is a great mistake. In extent of territory, we embrace upwards of 564,000 square miles. That is 200,000 more square miles than was in the original 13 states. It is an area more than double the territory of France or the Austrian Empire. France, in round numbers, has but 212,000 square miles. 
Austria in round numbers has 248,000 square miles. Ours is greater than both combined. It is greater than all France, Spain, Portugal, and Great Britain. In population, we have over 5 million, according to the census of 1860. This includes whites and blacks. The entire population, including white and black, of the original 13 states was less than 4 million in 1790, and still less in 1776, when our fathers gained their independence. If they, with a smaller population, dared maintain their independence against the greatest power on earth, shall we have any apprehension of maintaining ours now? In point of material wealth and resources, we are greatly in advance of them. The taxable property of the Confederate States is nearly $2 billion. This, I think, is almost five times more than the colonies possessed at the time they achieved their independence. Georgia alone, last year, possessed $672 million in taxable property. The debts of the seven Confederate States add up to less than $18 million, while the dates of the other of the old United States amount to $174 million. This is without taking into account the heavy city debts, corporation debts, and railroad debts, which press and will continue to press as a heavy weight upon the resources of those states. These debts added to others make a sum total of about $500 million. With such an area of territory as we have, with such a population, with a climate and soil unsurpassed by any on the face of the earth, with such resources also at our command, and with productions which control the commerce of the world, who can entertain any doubts as to our ability to succeed, whether others join us or not? It is true, I believe I state but the common sentiment, when I declare my earnest desire that the border states should join us. The differences of opinion that existed among us before secession had to do more with how we would successfully secede than from any disagreement over the merits of secession itself. These differences of opinion were more in reference to policy than principle, and as Mr. Jefferson said in his inaugural in 1801, after the heated election, that there might be differences of opinion without differences on principle, and that all were, to some extent, Federalists and Republicans. In this connection, I take this occasion to state that I was not without grave and serious doubts that if worse came to worse, and cutting loose from the old government should be the only remedy for our safety and security, it would cause much more serious ills than it has. Thus far we have seen none of those incidents which usually attend revolutions. Wisdom, prudence, and patriotism have marked every step of our progress thus far. This bodes well for the future, and it is a matter of sincere gratification to me that I am enabled to make the declaration. Of the men I met in the Congress at Montgomery, a wiser, more conservative, deliberate, determined, resolute, and patriotic body of men I never met in my life. Their works speak for them. The provisional government speaks for them. The constitution of the permanent government will be a lasting monument to their worth, merit, and statesmanship. But to return to the question of the future, what is to be the result of this revolution? Will everything which began so well continue as it has begun? In reply to this anxious inquiry, I can only say it all depends on ourselves. A young man starting out in life with health, talent, and ability under a favoring providence may be said to be the architect of his own fortunes. His destinies are in his own hands. He may make for himself a name of honor or dishonor according to his own acts. 
If he plants himself upon truth, integrity, honor, and uprightness, with industry, patience, and energy, he will find success. So it is with us. We are a young republic, just entering upon the arena of nations. We will be the architects of our own fortunes. Our destiny under providence is in our hands. With wisdom, prudence, and statesmanship on the part of our public men, and intelligence, virtue, and patriotism on the part of the people, success to the full measures of our grandest hopes may be expected. But if unwise counsels prevail, if we become divided, if divisions arise, if dissensions spring up, if factions emerge, if party spirit, nourished by unholy personal ambition, shall rear its hydra head, I have no good to prophesy for you. Without intelligence, virtue, integrity, and patriotism on the part of the people, no republic or representative government can be durable or stable. We have intelligence and virtue and patriotism. All that is required is to cultivate and perpetuate these. Intelligence will not do without virtue. France was a nation of philosophers. These philosophers became Jacobins. They lacked that virtue, that devotion to moral principle, and that patriotism which is essential to good government. Organized upon principles of perfect justice and right, seeking amity and friendship with all other powers, I see no obstacle in the way of our upward and onward progress. Our growth, by accessions from other states, will depend greatly upon whether we present to the world a better government than that of the United States. If we do this, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas cannot hesitate long. Neither can Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri. They will necessarily gravitate to us. We made ample provision in our Constitution for the admission of other states. Looking to the distant future, and perhaps not very far distant either, it is not beyond the range of possibility and even probability that all the great states of the Northwest will gravitate this way, as well as Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, Arkansas, etc. Should they do so, our doors are wide enough to receive them, but not until they are ready to assimilate with us in principle. The process of disintegration of the old Union may almost certainly be expected to continue if we pursue the right course. We are now the nucleus of a growing power which, if we are true to ourselves, our destiny and high position, will become the controlling power on this continent. To what extent territorial expansion will go on in the process of time, or where it will end, the future will determine. So far as it concerns the states of the old Union, this process will be upon no such principles of reconstruction as now spoken of, but upon reorganization and new assimilation. Such are some of the glimpses of the future as I catch them. But first we must necessarily meet with the inconveniences and difficulties and embarrassments incident to all changes of government. These will be felt in our postal affairs and changes in the channel of trade. These inconveniences, it is to be hoped, will be but temporary and must be borne with patience and forbearance. Shall we have war with our late confederates? or will all differences between us be amicably settled? I can only say that the prospect of a peaceful adjustment is better, so far as I know, than it ever has been. The prospect of war is, at least, not so threatening as it has been. The idea of coercion, shadowed forth in President Lincoln's inaugural, seems not to be followed up as vigorously as was expected. Fort Sumter, it is believed, will soon be evacuated. What course will be pursued toward Fort Pickens 
and the other forts on the Gulf is not yet known. It is to be greatly desired that all of them should be surrendered. Our object is peace, not only with the North, but with the world. All matters relating to the public property, which belonged to the Union when we were members of it, we are ready and willing to adjust and settle upon the principles of right, equity, and good faith. War can be of no more benefit to the North than to us. Whether the intention of evacuating Fort Sumter is to be received as an evidence of a desire for a peaceful solution of our difficulties with the United States, or the result of necessity, I will not undertake here to say. I hope it signals a desire for peace. Rumors are afloat, however, that it is the result of necessity. All I can say to you, therefore, on that point is, keep your armor bright and your powder dry. The surest way to secure peace is to show your ability to maintain your rights. The principles and position of the ruling party in the United States, the Republican Party, present some puzzling questions. While it is a fixed principle with them never to allow the increase of a foot of slave territory, they seem to be equally determined not to part with an inch of our territory. They condemn slavery, and yet they want to hold on to as much slave territory as they can. They were ready to fight for the annexation of Texas, and are equally ready to fight now to keep her in the Union. Why is this? How can this strange paradox be accounted for? There seems to be but one rational explanation, and that is, despite their professions of humanity, they will not give up the benefits they derive from slave labor. Their generosity is overcome by their greed. The idea of enforcing the laws has but one object, and that is the collection of the taxes raised by slave labor to provide the funds necessary for their heavy spending. Money is what they are after, though it comes from the labor of slaves. If admission of states by Congress under the Constitution was an act of legislation, and in the nature of a contract between states, why should not this contract be regarded as all other civil contracts, which can be canceled by the mutual agreement of both parties? The seceding states have rescinded it on their part. They have resumed their sovereignty. Why can't the whole question be settled? If the North desires peace, they can simply have Congress and the President give their consent to the separation and recognize our independence.